The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. We've been looking at Jack Kornfield's book, The Wise Heart, on chapter 11 now, which is titled The Ancient Unconsciousness. And the particular Buddhist principle that Jack Kornfield um, is really basing this chapter on is something he calls, uh, or something he says is about mindfulness, revealing, illuminating what is subtle and not yet uncovered. And the principle here is that he says, there is a personal and universal unconsciousness, turning awareness to the unconscious to the unconscious brings understanding and freedom. And I mentioned last week that I probably would use the word subtle instead of unconscious. It just makes it, you know, when we call something unconscious, it, it makes it different than what's conscious. Might be better to just understand our lived experience that in this moment, a lot that might be arising is either so subtle, or maybe it's not even that it's subtle, but in a sense so personal that we tend not to notice it. We're not aware that it's arising. And also last week, if you weren't here, I talked about how you know there is something we call the past, but it doesn't exist anymore. So whatever the past is or was is here and now. And that's why people have terms like the unconscious or subconscious. But in any case, whatever there is from the past, it has to show up here in the present moment. Like we've had amazing, all of us, uh, an amazing number of experiences in the past. Some beautiful, probably some really difficult experiences, a lot of neutral experiences. If you study embryology, as people do, of course, you see that not only do we have <clears throat> sort of the genetic code of a human being, but the basic foundation of this physical being, you know, it's shared with all species on this planet. So in a way, What's showing up in this moment is not just like what happened to me when I was six or, you know, the particular American culture that has affected my conditioning, my mind. But everything is showing up in the present moment as this moment. But clearly, you know, mostly we're not noticing that. Mostly we're just noticing I had a little too much for lunch or ate something that wasn't so agreeable or... You know, if we're lucky, we notice, oh, you know, that interaction I had three hours ago didn't feel right. I should really check back with that person. I think I need to apologize, or I think I need to say something that I didn't say to that person. That's if we're lucky. We have a sense of that baggage or that unfinished business. <clears throat> but it's nice to just open our mind that there's a lot more showing up in every moment because... It couldn't be anywhere else but here and now. I mean, if there is any effect from the past, and you know, Buddhism is 
is sort of really uh, um, inspired by this experience or this understanding that intentional actions have consequences. I mean, this is not new. This is something we all see being acted out in our lives. And so if that's true, that intentional actions have consequences, well, all of those consequences have to be somewhere, floating around or alive, in order to actually be something, in order to be able to be activated. Like uh, in this chapter, Jack Hornfield talks about how different experiences trigger our conditioning. You know, so if we have, like for example, I often mention, I have the tendency to be defensive. But I'm not always defensive. But if somebody does something, or if I imagine something is happening in a particular way, then that defensive conditioning, in a sense, comes online. But where is it when it's not online? You know, when, it's, when I'm not actually defensive on the surface. Where is that tendency to be defensive? So we want to have a sense that although we're aware of this mind-body experience right now, we want to have a sense, uh, um, maybe a quality of humility, that there's a lot here to know, to open to, that we haven't yet opened to. And it really inspires us. You know, it inspires us to be more sensitive, more calm, or even more interested in the present moment. I mean, if, you know, if we had the sense that all, you know, capital A, L, L, all, everything is here and now, well, we'd want to show up. You know, like if you saved for years, took your money, bought a ticket, went to some exotic place, you know, wherever that is for you, you know, you'd, you'd actually be interested. You know, you'd go looking at the sites, the amazing, like, Great Wall of China or the old cathedrals or this or that, different culture, different food, different qualities. It, it really enliven the mind. So if we have that same sense about the present moment, we get very interested in how to better and better show up. And that goes to that, um, that second point I made about the training, which is that's where samadhi comes in. Once we realize that there's something to show up to, like the present moment, then we get interested in samadhi because we, we have some sense some faith or confidence that there's really something to see, something to feel, something to know here and now that we're currently not aware of. It's here. It's totally available, like the Buddha says, describing Dhamma the way it is. He says, you know, there's a passage that the monks and nuns still to, the, to this day chant about Dhamma, you know, that it's available here and now available to the wise here and now. It's accessible. It's timeless. So, you know, it's always funny to use words like the truth, or, you know, in Buddhism, we use Dhamma the way it is. 
It always seems like we're talking about something like beyond us. We always, because especially in the West, but I think generally human beings have this very strong idea of transcendence. Like whatever is good and holy, you know, it's up there. And often we think whatever is bad and unholy is down there somewhere. But Dhamma is here. It's not anywhere else. And Samadhi, by definition, is really what allows the mind or the heart to open completely to Dhamma the way it is. So then we get inspired, like just through trial and error. What helps the mind to see what it isn't seeing? Or, you know, the other way is just equally useful. What causes the mind to be less clear, more diluted, less connected, less insightful? So now I'm seeing less, understanding less than what I normally understand. I mean, we know how that is. Like, you know, whatever you do for your living, whether you teach or write or sell products. And let's say you had a really crazy day. You're sick. You had an argument with your partner. Uh, you tripped and fell and hurt your knee and got mud all over you. And then you got to do whatever you do. And your mind is all over the place. And you're still chewing on stuff from the recent past. And, of course, when you do whatever you do for your living, let's say, you're not going to do it very well. The mind won't be so clear. You won't be receptive and reading the situation and responding appropriately and skillfully. And you're likely to make, more likely at least, to make a mess of it. So we know that experience, being less connected, less able to show up, and therefore less able to be skillful, to respond skillfully in the moment. So we can understand the other way. Like, what can we do? And where's, you know, how far can we develop the mind so it becomes more and more skillful, more able to show up? Like, one of the, probably one of the definitions of ignorance is the assumption that however I'm able to show up right now, to my life, to the moment, is just as much as possible. Right? That's an easy assumption to make, isn't it? Like, I'm already showing up. You know. And then we we basically convince ourselves there's nothing else, there's no other training to do because I'm fully here. I'm fully here in the moment. I know I'm connected to the body, I'm connected to what's going on. And we become complacent, like whatever skill functionality we have, we just assume there is no more skill, no more intelligence, no more sensitivity, no more insight available. Isn't that normally how we go about our day? That's a very arrogant assumption, of course. And one of the interesting things, you know, when you, when you start experimenting with this training in samadhi, concentrating the mind, or even better than concentrating the mind, it's the unification of the mind. We're taking the disparate, scattered energies of the mind, and we're collecting it in the present moment, unifying the mind in the present moment. It becomes very powerful. So when you do that, you may not notice it so much in the sit, but maybe after your sit or after your walking meditation, 
and now you're going about more ordinary daily life activities, but there's a sensitivity that uh, makes the experience different. The mind is just, it's almost like uh, the mind is experiencing a different dimension. Like normally we're seeing things in two dimensions, now all of a sudden we're experiencing things in three dimensions. And it's just that extra dimension really helps sort of bring the present moment, whatever it is, whatever it is, alive. And then we're just able to be more skillful because we're more aware of how it is. And the response to whatever's going on in our life needs, where, where else would, would skill come from if it isn't actually being connected to what's going on? And you could go the other way. What else would like ignorance or uh, ineffective action be except a response that's not based on being connected? I mean, we argue, we rail against the ignorant politicians or the our ignorant friends or our ignorant parents or loved ones, you know, doing stupid things. But maybe better, more accurate than saying they've done a stupid thing is they're acting out of incomplete information. They have, they're seeing something and they're responding or reacting to that something, but they're not seeing everything. They're not seeing it in depth or with perspective. This is a much more useful definition of ignorance or stupidity or being bad. You know, it's action, thoughts, words, and deeds arising out of incomplete understanding, in incomplete information. So developing samadhi, developing that unification, that stability and balance of mind, not only are we going to open to what we are already able to see, but we're going to begin to open to what we don't see normally, don't connect with, don't perceive, aren't sensitive not sensitive enough to, or blinded to. So samadhi, that balance of mind, it isn't confused by habits. Because when the mind is really, one of the qualities of samadhi is it, <clears throat> you could say it has its own independence. Normally when I'm with our normal state of consciousness or state of attention, the attention is usually almost always dependent on particular views. It's like the attention, the way we're seeing or understanding or connecting with experience is being colored by the particular view or understanding we have. But mindfulness, it has this independence. What gives mindfulness or balanced samadhi, what gives it its independence? When we cultivate that balance, that continuity of mindfulness, so we're with the breath, let's say we're doing a classic training in samadhi where we're taking the attention and we're bringing it to the nostrils and we're feeling that simple touching as the breath goes in through the nostrils and then we're feeling it as it goes out. Now, there are many different ways to develop samadhi. This is just one that the Buddha talks about. Breathing in, we know the sensations all the way to the end of the in-breath, 
And then we know, knowing the ordinary touching all the way to the end of the outbreath. And then again. And so when we're doing that, we're collecting the attention. We're not thinking about this. We're not thinking about that. We're not judging whether we're doing it right. We're simply noticing, touching, 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 touching. And so this is what we mean by unification. The rest of the world basically falls away. It's not that hearing isn't happening, or smelling isn't happening, or sensations aren't happening. But the mind is just attending to that simple touching, 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 touching. And the rest of the world recedes into the background. And as the rest of the world recedes into the background, everything that normally agitates the mind, fragments the mind, sends it here, sends it there, in endless proliferation. It's just not happening because it's receded. And because because the mind is just knowing the simple non-agitating experience of breathing, that touching as the breath goes in and out, everything that normally agitates the mind is gone, or far distant at least. And so the mind starts to feel not agitated. In other words, it's happy. We call this bliss. Now, sometimes the bliss can get real strong, but even before it gets real strong, the mind just starts to feel relatively content. Or another word that I like is it feels whole, unfragmented. Ah, it's like a, it's like this unification is just being with something ordinary and not thinking about anything else, not being agitated by anything else. There's something deeply satisfying about not being agitated. Just like there's something deeply unsatisfying about, like, should I buy this or not? Should I call this person or not? Did I do the right thing yesterday or not? These thoughts are agitating for the mind. So when these thoughts have retreated, the mind's not agitated. It feels content. When the mind is content, it becomes independent. When we're not content, when the mind isn't content, it's seeking contentment. It's seeking contentment by trying to figure out, did I say the right thing yesterday or not? Should I buy that or not? You know, am I a good person or a bad person? It feels like the contentment will come by answering these kinds of questions that it's asking itself. This is endless. It never really leads to contentment, but it always seems like it will. Like some of you know, when and I have been looking for property uh, in the country for a long time now, for many, many years. And, you know, so we see something we like, and then there's always a the question, well, should we get it or not? You know, and it, and it just seems so compelling that, you know, getting the place will somehow lead to contentment. Or sometimes it's the other way, like doing it will make me discontent because I'll be worried, you know, was it the right, can I afford it? But in any case, either way, Entertaining the question is agitating for the mind. And when I drop it, I just come back and feel the body sitting, or feel the next in-breath, next out-breath, or just aware of hearing. Then the absence of what's agitating allows for satisfaction to arise. The mind is happy, it's content, it becomes independent. So now, the more unified the mind is in the present moment with the breath or with ordinary experience, hearing, feeling the body sitting, then it becomes independent. So then when something arises 
the mind isn't dependent, so we can see that experience as it is. So when the mind starts to think again, then that thought, it isn't personal. Because if it feels personal, we're not independent. We're already, the, the awareness in a sense is already tied to the thought. I'm having this thought, I must want this or not want this. But when there's an independence, an inner contentment, that allows the awareness, in a sense, just to settle back. You know, what does awareness settle back in? It, it just settles back in a pure knowing. A lot of times we use the image in Buddhism of a mirror. You know, like a mirror effortlessly reflects, you know, a good mirror effortlessly reflects whatever's in front of it. So whatever arises in the field of experience, whatever we see or think or smell or taste or touch or hear, it just is effortlessly reflected because the mind has, in a sense, settled back on itself, settled back in pure knowing. It's become really simple. Like the essence of the mind is just knowing. And right now, that's all the mind is. And it's finding a satisfaction in that simple knowing. And then phenomena are still going to happen. Life continues, right? We, sounds continue to arise. Even thoughts. Just because samadhi has developed doesn't mean thoughts won't keep coming. Because the momentum of thinking, it's basically its own thing. They're really, uh, you can suppress thinking through various meditation techniques. And for periods of time, thinking will become very faint and even disappear for periods of time. But when the mind isn't sort of engaged in those techniques, thoughts will come. That's what the mind does. Part of the mind thinks. But now, in a sense, the mind has also taken refuge in that pure knowing. So sensations come and go, thoughts come and go, sounds come and go. But now we're doing more of an insight practice, that second intention or motivation I talked about, or maybe I mentioned it first, which is just opening and letting go, or opening and letting things be. But now we can do it because the mind is content. It's independent. And so it's willing to just be in the knowing and not feel like it has to actually be for or against any of the touches any of the smells or sounds, any of the sights, or any of the thoughts. Thoughts, all those things, come and go, but the mind remains independent. And because of that independence, it starts to have insight. Because now it's seeing phenomena, or the unfolding experiences, it's seeing them as they actually are, because it doesn't have an agenda. And it doesn't have an agenda because it's already happy. It's already content. And how did it get content? It retreated from what was agitating. And how did it do that? It, you know, we train the mind to attend and sustain attention with what's ordinary. And when we get some continuity with the breath, or get some continuity with sitting, or if we're walking, some simple continuity with the experience of lifting the foot and placing the foot, or whatever, we're paying attention to. We can do this washing the dishes. We can do this brushing our teeth. We can do it anything, basically with anything. Some activities like breathing are simpler training grounds for samadhi than others. 
But when we train in that continuity of attention with what's ordinary, we retreat from what's agitating. When we retreat from what's agitating, the mind doesn't feel agitated. It feels content. The more content the mind is, the more independent it is. The more independent it is, the more it's going to see things as they actually are. The more it sees things as they actually are, the more it lets go. Letting go leads to deeper freedom. So there's a free, there's in Buddhism, or you could say, you know, in terms of spiritual technology, there's two ways to experience freedom. We can experience freedom by retreating from what's agitating. That's a temporary kind of freedom. Like I'm, I'm really like even a nice vacation is a temporary kind of freedom. You go someplace that's really beautiful. Like I was on the south shore of Lake Superior last week. It's really beautiful, and just the view and the quality of the water. It was very engaging for the mind, and in moments at least, it was so engaging that I let go of all the thoughts of that I have problems or I have a to-do list or I want to keep this, you know. So we can, we can have moments of that temporary freedom all the time when the mind is engaged skillfully with what's the present moment. And in particular, it's easy when it's beautiful. Then the mind opens completely and connects completely and sustains that simple, clear presence and therefore retreats from what's agitating. And we get a temporary freedom from agitation. And then a more profound freedom comes when we use that independence, that samadhi, to open to not just to the stuff we like, but to open indiscriminately to whatever's arising, whatever's predominant. But now because there's that inner independence, that balance, we just see things in a way we normally don't see them. We see thoughts in ways we don't normally experience thoughts. We experience sound in ways we don't normally experience sound. And we feel that independence with conditioned experience. So we don't feel so dependent on conditioned experience. It's like normally we think happiness depends on certain conditions. But because we're already happy, we're realizing a happiness that's not about the conditions. And that's, that's a real revolution. All of a sudden, we have a completely different relationship to life, the life of conditioned experience. So what do we do with conditioned experience if it isn't about making us happy? Like if we're already happy, we don't. Then we become equanimous with conditioned experience. So now our activity in the world, it isn't about getting what we need to be happy because we're already happy. It's really about generosity or love or taking care of everybody because that's all that's left. We're already feeling content. So just the way in the world becomes very different. Now bringing this back, before I open it up, I just want to bring this back to this chapter and uh, working with what is right now below the level of conscious awareness or too subtle to connect with or to know. Because the freedom, that deeper kind of freedom is meaning it, it's really describing the heart that can open and let go, be present with whatever is true, with however it is, without being tied 
or caught or pushed around by what's happening. So the real freedom wouldn't arise until we're able to open to everything, not just what's on the surface. Like the, the old joke, you know, you think your practice is going well, well, go home and visit your parents and see. Like, you know, I can open to my breath, but can we open to our partners? Can we open to hot and humid weather? Can we open to our parents? Can we open to, you know, reading the newspaper? Can we let that in? Can we let in aging? Can we let in death and loss? So we want to be able to open to everything, including the entirety of the past as it arises here in the present moment. You know, the past arises as our conditioning. Last night in the intro class, intro class on Tuesday night, one of the people taking the introduction class said that she started to notice, like her practice was going well, she was really enjoying it. We're on week four now. and But all of a sudden she's noticing all kinds of anger that has nothing, doesn't seem to have anything to do with what's going on. And then when she looks or opens to the anger, it's like a deep sadness. She just wants to cry. And it just she doesn't know how to handle it or doesn't it just feels weird. She was driving to a party, you know, and she was just crying. But it wasn't about the party, it wasn't about anything. And uh, you know, and we talked about afterward, after she mentioned that to the group, you know, I shared about how well this is how it is in practice that uh, we're not just opening to the surface of our lives, but we're really opening to everything that isn't completely finished. Things that are already finished, they're gone. This is the, one of the aspects of Theravada Buddhism I like. You know, this idea that the enlightening process, the awakening process, is about leaving behind no traces. It doesn't mean there isn't, in a sense, karma or a sort of unfinished business that there's no part of the mind claiming it, identifying with it, confused by it. So, you know, my mind, or, you know, this mind stream, maybe is a better way to say it, it may have, you know, particular kind of momentum as it moves through experiences in life. But there's, but, but what's been teased out through insight is any identification with the unfolding mind stream or the unfolding stream of experience. There's experience, there's the knowing of experience, there's the wisdom knowing the experience, the wisdom that isn't confused by conditions coming and going. So we're inspired to develop samadhi, this balance of mind, so we can open to everything, not just what's on the surface of our life, but everything like the great depths of human suffering and all the great depths of beauty and happiness, both are actually quite challenging to open to. Sometimes we think it's just opening to the pain, the injustice, you know, but that's hard to open to. It's also hard to really relax and open to what's beautiful, but just to let it be beautiful. Like some of you have kids and sometimes it's really beautiful to see your kids experiencing some success, you know. But just to just relax with that, not to need to own it in any way, but just to let it move, let the joy move through us. Or, you know, I see our cat, when my cat, you know, 
doing her cat thing and just being beautiful. And I kind of want to own it in some way, you know. I, but just to let things be beautiful, fully beautiful, or a nice day, or like superior, you know, let it be beautiful without the mind getting caught up in any kind of craving. Oh, I'd be happier if I could spend more time here. You see how it ruins the moment in a very real way. We're, it's like we're, you know, excreting something foul right there on Lake Superior just through our attachment or fear that the vacation is going to end or something like that. So I'll leave it here and leave a little bit more time tonight for people to share from your own practice. It'd be nice to share about your own training in this balance of mind, the samadhi, and how it's opened things up for you. It'd be nice to hear about just your own experiences of seeing what you hadn't seen before as you, as the mind, the practice lets, kind of opens doors and windows that have been closed off. Or any questions that you might have. So what comes to mind? I, um, it's like, when I don't, I mean, at work, somebody is the least busy time too. So I have more time and, um, like it's just like I have a lot of free time that I, I, my mind goes crazy. I'm constantly thinking about something else. Like, like just little things, conversations I just had, you know, I should do, should be doing something fun and planning, all this stuff. And, as I get busier with the other work, and I find eventually find things to do, and I make myself busy, and I realize my mind, at least I feel like it's less, it's more, I guess it's, it's less crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, so I wonder, um, that the, uh, the, Good thing or bad thing? I feel like I'm filling up with some activities. Yeah. Well, I think the the key is just to, when we see certain patterns, we should just assume that they're rational. Because everything, even really destructive behaviors, are rational, given how we're understanding the situation. It makes sense. But the question is, does it include all of the information, you know, all of what's there in the moment? So when you notice, when we notice ourselves doing things in a sense to fill up space because um, when the mind has this open space, it feels uncomfortable. So it starts to do neurotic things because it doesn't know how to be in that relatively simple space. Well, this sounds a lot like samadhi practice, doesn't it? So if we really understand that principle, well, let's give the mind something to do, like connect and sustain attention with the breath. Or to do whatever you're doing completely, fully, you know? Because it's true, a lot of the momentum of our conditioning is being driven by fear or anxiety or neediness. And these things create a lot of tension in the mind and body when we act them out. So why not? have a handful of activities that we can give the mind to do that aren't going to be coming out of fear or anxiety or neediness. 
that are going to come out of like a desire to help the mind, a desire to calm the mind, a, a desire to heal the mind by unifying it in the present moment. That would be really appropriate. So, you know, now that you've noticed that you like to be busy, then then just observe, like, what kind of busyness is most effective? And what kind of busyness actually creates more agitation than it resolves? Because you might find that certain activities, just the way your mind's conditioned, you can really get calm as you pour yourself into that activity 100%. You, know, you really practice. And if we do that, you know, we'll find that joy, that inner satisfaction, not because the activity is inherently pleasant, but that showing up completely is inherently pleasant. And volunteering, like, Sihi, is that how you say it? Sihi. Uh, has volunteered at the center. She's going to be taking care of the tea area, um, just making sure it's stocked and clean and ready for people to make a cup of tea. Just like so many people, maybe 50 to 70 people, regularly volunteer at the center just to kind keep everything going. And, you know, it's like you could approach that, you know, like, oh, I'll just pick this up. But we can practice showing up completely. So one of the nice things about volunteering here or anywhere, it's like you don't have to do it. So why not, because you've decided to do it, why not make it a real act of love? You know, like joy, okay, I'm going to really, and not, to, not that you have to put more time than it needs, but like do it 100% and really feel how nice it is to connect, to see what needs to be done, to do it, to be done, and then to let it drop, you know, and then to do the next thing. To really drive home 100% there, you know? When you're talking to somebody, that like 100% there. And because life is always happening, there's always something to totally open to, totally commit to. You don't actually have to go looking, you know, give your mind something to do because life comes to you in a sense. And you could just say yes to that, whatever that is. And in a sense, when nothing's when nothing is happening, it's not really true. There's still something happening. I'm just sitting here. So how do you do that 100%? You're not attached to sitting here. So like if something arises that makes it clear you should do something else, you can do that. But you're not afraid to 100% sit there. Way back in the early 90s, we used to bring this teacher in. He's still teaching. His name is Shinzen Young, a well-known Vipassana meditation teacher out of L.A. He lives in L.A. But he used to come to Minnesota once or twice a year to teach. And he had a friend in L.A. Uh, I don't know if he was a Zen priest or not, but he was from Asia originally. And he was a pretty serious Buddhist practitioner. And he'd spend his day basically meditating. I don't know how he earned a living. But his philosophy was, I just sit until somebody asks me to do something. And then I completely do it, you know. <laughs> Whatever they say, I try, I try my best to be skillful, respond. And then I go back to sitting, you know, and that was his approach to life. I thought, well, that's kind of nice, if you can afford it. <laughs> but you can even do that with your job, you know. I just sit, and then I realize it's time to go to work, you know. And then I really go to work, you know. And I really do that until it's done. And then I, you know, I feed myself, and I really show up for that. And then the next thing. Yeah.
Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, Bob. Mark, is there any point in this practice, meaning um, level in this practice as you progress through, that everything is done, that everything has been discovered? Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> but uh, I think there's, there's kind of a transition that happens where it uh, seems like even at, at the, the place where I'm in my practice, uh, that there's more to wake up to, but I'm not so compelled to be the person who's going to w- wake up to it. And so it makes the waking up process a lot lighter and less neurotic. I'm not so much in a hurry. Like when I, when I was beginning my practice, I was really interested in, in enlightenment, you know, really interested in freedom and really interested in getting to that nth degree that you kind of pointed to. And now it seems less important, you know, and what, what seems more important is just to be relaxed and to, to trust the process itself, the awakening process itself. Like I have a, a lot of faith in awareness and it's sort of like, you know, that's where I've, you know, that's what I've taken as my refuge. And I feel like what helps that commitment is to relax, because mostly I get in the way, you know, by, you know, like checking all the time, like if I made progress or is somebody making more progress than me or should I work with another teacher or, you know, it's so easy, and especially in America, we have such a consumer mentality, and this carries over into spiritual life, of course. And there are so many good teachers and good teachings and good ways to practice out there. It's really confusing. And so, you know, having been burnt so many times by, not burnt by outside forces, but my own hunger, my own desire, my own attachment, you know, I'm more relaxed now and patient with the awakening process. It doesn't feel so personal. Like the the momentum of insight, you know, I'm not saying it's like fast. I'm just saying that it seems trustworthy, you know, just to let it do its thing. Other thoughts people have that come to mind? Yeah. Um, I've been really helped by the the comments that you've made about opening to whatever is there, whether it's joy or pain or anger or whatever it is, just letting yourself open to it fully. And I'm a teacher, and today was the first day that I had to have a faculty meeting and see all of my colleagues. And I was thinking ahead about this meeting and realizing that I was very excited to see some of them. And I was kind of stealing myself with defenses, thinking that I was going to have to see other ones, just knowing how they operate. And so before this meeting, I thought, well, how about I just practice opening fully to everyone and all the good news, all the bad news that we were going to hear, whatever it was, I would just commit to trying to open fully to it. And it made a huge difference in how I got through that meeting. It was a four-hour meeting, and I wasn't I appreciate that. So that inside practice, it really involves two things. I forget your name again, I'm sorry. Jan. 
So to, for Jan to do that, it required two things. If her mind was really agitated, it probably wouldn't have been possible. You'd be much more likely to fall into your more traditional way of relating to the difficult people in particular. So we need that inner contentment, that unification, and we need that instruction. You know, like somehow we have to bring up the possibility of opening. It's, we have to, there has to be an insertion of a different view, a, a reminder of a different way. And that's as a problem, because you could have been really sensitive and really like uh, um, happy, but well, still, I've seen this happen a lot. Like I'm happy, but I don't use that happiness to maintain a sense of independence with experience and just allow things to arise. So I'm happy, and then something irritates me. I feel totally okay about polluting my happiness by grabbing a hold of this pattern, you know, and really getting to, into not liking and and wanting to control or whatever, you know, afflictive emotion that I've been caught by. But if we have that inner happiness, that inner stability, that balanced mind, and we have the reminder of the view, which is just let things be, then we can have powerful insight, like you described, Jane. Thanks for sharing that with, with the group. Check back in when, <laughs> when, as your samadhi decreases as the academic year goes on. <laughs> I remember once back in August when, yeah. Jenny, I, I guess my question is how how do you have that reminder? It seems like so often it will be kind of after that that you think, oh, you know, I haven't had more time to think about this or calm down. Yeah. Well, uh, this is part of the training. Part of the training is uh, playing, working with these ideas. So on a conceptual level, we have talks, you talk to your friends, and you're kind of making a big deal about opening. You know, look, think about how much we talk about cell phones, or we talk about, you know, the best Mexican restaurant or the best Thai restaurant. Or, I mean, we talk about all kinds of things. Why not talk about the possibility of opening to experience just as it is? You know, so, and then, you know, we read about it, and, and it's like, boy, that makes sense. You know, we talk to our friends about it, we hear someone like Jan share a story, and we kind of feel inspired a little bit. And the more we play with the ideas, reflect on the ideas, the more we can recall them. Just like we might be able to recall, oh, yeah, I remember Casey saying that uh, he really liked his iPhone, you know? We can remember those things, but we can also remember, oh, yeah, I remember the Buddha talked about opening to experience without attachment. And so that's how it comes up online. We, you know, and that's why people have a lot of Buddhist books on their bookshelf and they go. There are, there are some advantages of just hanging out with the teachings a lot. Then we can recite them, we can bring them to mind very quickly. 
even if it's just an idea, the idea packs a punch. It represents the capacity of the mind to be present without attachment. And that we don't make the mind, we don't make that capacity of the mind to be present without attachment. It is a capacity of the mind. But we need to remember it. You know, it has to be brought up because otherwise the conditioning is not going to support that. The conditioning of our mind, the habit energy of the mind basically says when we experience something, we should either be for or against it, you know, and then we should react accordingly and proliferate, think about it accordingly. So that's what we're going to do unless we have a different approach and we have to remember that different approach. So just recall that as often as you can. That will help. You know, and you can put little reminders, memorize different pithy phrases that will help you remember. Thanks, Jennifer. Is that what you said? Jenny. Thanks, Jenny. About five minutes left. Maybe time for one more. Anybody have a thought uh, from your practice you'd like to share with the group? My name is David. And what I do is I just seem to torment myself things that are coming up in my life, like it's a meeting, or if it's uh, work the next day, or think about what I have to deal with, and just, uh, my mind is racing, and then it ends up being, it's like having a test that you didn't prepare for, that young feeling, like say the test is in five minutes, and you have not prepared for it, that feeling, and then once I get it, Usually it's not as bad as I've worked it up to me. And I always get this sense of I'm going to fall apart, I'm going to fail for whatever reason I can kind of unique. And usually I come through with it. Okay? But it's just that uh, continuous, like it's a tormented soul kind of mentality. That I deal with a lot of people who work a lot of negativity every day. I'm a dispatcher. I deal with a lot of people who aren't so happy. And I let it get to me. So it's really hard to separate. Yeah. That's what I'm doing. So it's kind of a problem here. And I'm trying to bring my, my mind. Like trying to, it's hard to sleep. Lay in bed. Yeah. But then I worked everything out much more than it really is when I get there and I get into the moment and I start working. It never turns out to be quite as bad as I built it up in my head. And you really, one of the things you're bringing up that's so useful is if we honestly track our experience, we really catch how ineffective, inefficient, and destructive our thinking patterns are, like you've described. So I would, one, keep doing that. Keep tracking and see that experience doesn't match the emotion and the thoughts that came, that you, you had about the particular experience. And the other thing, and I know this sounds a little morbid, but the more we see that the, that the pain is self-inflicted, like you described, I mean, in a very poignant way. And we, I think, all know this. I mean, this is archetypal. How many people 
have had a, either a, a sleeping dream or the waking experience of not being prepared and that sort of panic that comes with not being prepared. I mean, it is universal. I'm very critical of myself, super hyper-critical. If I was to be as critical of myself verbally to my child, it would be, it would be devastating. Yeah. But if you see that, like that's exactly the contrast you want to see. You may think like that's not having an effect, but actually if we really see ourselves, see the, the, the thinking patterns, the conditioned habitual patterns, because you're not actually doing it, because if you were, you'd stop. But it's just the pattern, right? If you really see the destructiveness of the pattern, it weakens it. It may feel like nothing's happening, but gradually, every time we see how self-destructive a pattern is, it gets weaker. If we somehow believe it's necessary, that gets reinforced. So just keep seeing, that's what tracking does, cause and effect. You really see like how, like you mentioned when you're up at night thinking it, you, you mentioned how your mind gets all bound up, right? Like a head of steam. So you really want to notice what that head of steam feels like, like you are. And notice how heavy it is. Notice how unproductive it is. Notice how it doesn't actually match the situation. It doesn't like help you be a better dispatcher. Keep noticing that. I know it's painful work, but it changes. It's like any addiction. You know, we're mostly what we're addicted to are these different emotional, mental patterns. Just like in the same way, where people could be addicted to cigarettes or alcohol or drugs or certain kind of emotional, relational patterns. And what helps someone to get free of an addictive pattern is to really notice how destructive the addictive pattern is, because. Human beings, most human beings are not insane. They don't consciously do destructive things. We unconsciously do destructive things. But when we then illuminate the destructiveness of our patterns, it's not possible to continue them unless we're really insane. You know, some people, insane just means you're not able to see things clearly. We have to leave it here. But please feel free to bring, I mean, work with that. And if it seems appropriate, bring it back up in a couple of weeks. Share with the group. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a deep breath or two.